2: Appropriately enough, in our program, we move into a discussion with Pavan Dingra. Pavan is joining us. He's the author of a book that I found very fascinating. It's entitled Hyper-Education, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough. Uh, Pavan, first of all, good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, the title of that book, I'm always curious about this with authors. Was that the original title?
1: It was. But I mean, I didn't set out with a title and then kind of write the book. I, I was, I was writing the book. I realized this is what I'm hearing. Right, I'm hearing, in effect, the parents are saying, "We need more education than what our schools are providing us." And what's, what was striking about that is that these are families who are in some of the highest ranked school districts of their state, and their children are doing just fine in school. They're not behind. They're not in any way. Uh, they're not, you know, gifted. They're just doing well. And they're very young. These were second graders, fifth graders. And they're saying our kids need more academic content. Uh, they need to be pushed more than what the school is providing. And this is can be fascinating, it can be um, stressful, it can be educational, and actually it's all of these things. And one of the challenges is that, one of the reasons why it matters is that it, it in effect, creating an education arms race for our younger and younger kids where you have to be doing more out of school, outside of school in order to be seen as smart and competent and high-achieving. And so why it matters is that it's impacting obviously the students who are doing this, but it's impacting those who aren't doing it as well, who may not see themselves as competent or um, as strong as they actually are, because other students are getting ahead. And so it's a growing trend, um, and that's what kind of led me to the idea of hyper-education. Now, Pavan, does that? just heighten anxiety it is in fact there's already a growing trend before our pandemic and now it's just going to increase and so i can say that um, with some confidence because right now parents are homeschooling their kids and you're seeing like an increase in purchases of academic books because they're saying well our kids aren't getting enough homework or our kids are they're given assignments that are due for the week but they finish it early i need to just give more stuff to my kids and so parents are maybe for the first time Increasingly not trusting that the schools are giving their children enough reading, writing, arithmetic, so they're taking it onto their own hands. Well, this is what I'm talking about, right? Why are parents who are perfectly fine schools not satisfied and seeking more education, which contributes to you know educational inequality, the growing pri- the growing privatization of schools because many of these families are seeking these educational uh, supplements through you know private um, companies or through coaching or something else. And again, just to be clear, I'm not not talking about extreme families, right? That are so intense in education that they're like, you would look at them as, you know, crazy. This is a growing middle-class trend that we're seeing that I think because of our pandemic is just going to grow and become even more entrenched.
2: How do we rein that in?
1: Well, that's the million-dollar question, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe billion-dollar question because it's a billion-dollar industry of tutoring. Um, And I think we're going to realize that this is not necessarily always a bad thing, right? Parents seeking more for their kids is what parents do. And so what I think we need to, do, we need to recognize is that why parents are doing this sometimes has legitimate reasons, like their kids just really love certain academic subjects and the parents want to encourage what the kids love, and that makes sense. But we want to, what we do want to rein in is a sense of I need to do this, even though my kid may not like it, because otherwise my kid will be out-competed by another child. Right? And that's what we want to have a conversation around. We want an education system where parents feel they have to always be out-competing the person, not just you know across uh, town, uh, but also right next to them. And the domino effect this creates is one that teachers I spoke to are feeling this, you know, I'm seeing more anxiety, I'm seeing more stress, I'm seeing a lot of self-doubt, a lot of lack of confidence in students. And yet, parents, on the other hand, are saying, if we don't do this, if we don't invest in this kind of education for our kids outside of school, then they worry their kids won't be able to take advantage of opportunities down the road. They won't get into selective colleges that uh, maybe not not even the Ivies, just but selective colleges overall, and they could be putting their kids at risk. So the real challenge here, right, which is which is why it's a billion dollar question, that on the one hand you have teachers looking out for kids and worrying about the stress and the competition. Your parents, on the other hand, saying, if we don't do this, our kids could be at risk for, you know, lack of confidence or lack of opportunities. And this is a challenge we have to um, start addressing through more communication through parents and teachers by asking ourselves as the public, what kind of education system do we want? Right? That's the, other, the way forward.
2: Well, isn't the real goal, though, to one of the goals, the idea of trying to create a sense of uh, learn, learning being a lifelong process? For, for kids?
1: That's an excellent question and I'm glad you asked that because uh, one of the concerns that educators have around this growth of uh, having kids in more education outside yeah. of school is that children will come to see learning not just school as a chore to do just like I have to like you know make my bed and take off the trash, instead of enjoying the process of learning instead of at least at least finding it to be inspiring to some degree right and then, if that becomes the case, right, children see learning as an activity they have to get done because you have to, you know, do more worksheets or you have to study this or that, then the long-term impacts are could be quite problematic. One is, as you're saying, right, they don't appreciate learning as its own kind of uh, activity. Other uh, impacts can be, you know, lack of creativity. Lack of compassion. Like, I don't mean that these kids are not compassionate. They're very compassionate kids. But my point is that if we think about education as simply, right, trying to create competitive children to take the next level, to get to the next stage, then what are we not teaching them, right? And I think if anything, this COVID-19 moment has taught us is that, you know, compassion for your neighbor is something that we should be really thinking deeply about. Uh, compassion for people you don't know. Right, it's something we really should be highlighting and stressing for all of us. And again, I'm not saying these families are anyway not that they are. In fact, they're very well meaning, they're very caring, uh, they're nice people, they're well grounded, right? But if we think about education and just in a competitive way, then what are we losing out on, right? Um, And that's the concern that you bring up, which I think is a very real one.
2: Do you think the pandemic could prompt a new approach to education in this country?
1: Uh, I would, uh, I would like to say yes, but I'm not optimistic about that, right? So. In a sense, um, the reason why I would like to say yes is that you know we talk about education as something where we're obviously instilling you know academic competency in the students, but we also say you know schools are at the front lines of social emotional well being. Um, They're they're feeding kids. They're doing so much more than just the ABCs. Right, and yet teachers are rarely assessed right in those other things that they're expected to do, and the assessment of teachers is very much about you know standardized testing and the like, and I don't want to weigh in on that per se. My only point is we can't really expect education to change in a fundamental way if the ways in which we measure outcomes doesn't also change, right? And the incentives, therefore, don't change. And also, the parents who do this have other motivations beyond just making sure their kids are academically competitive, which actually really surprised me. So when I asked parents, why do you do this? Now, why do you have your kid in an after-school math class? Uh, why do you have your kid preparing for an academic competition, like you know a math or spelling competition?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: They would say, oh, my kid enjoys this, or I want them to be better prepared, more competitive, all those, those kinds of things. But when I asked them, what do you worry will happen if you don't do this? Or what do they think of those families who don't do it? Then they revealed other motivations that were not just about making their kids smarter, but about making the kids more moral, better children. So in a sense, right, these parents are doing this because they think it not only creates more um, qualified kids, but more well grounded and culturally appropriate kids. And I'll give you an example. I was talking with one mother who had her children in an after school math class. And she was saying, you know, as we're talking about it, she said, you know, listen, my grandmother survived the Holocaust. My parents put me through college because they worked hard. I have my kids in this after-school math class, so I want them to understand the values of hard work, understand how they have to kind of grow as people. So that has nothing to do with, you know, being better at math or out-competing your your peers, right? That's also what she wanted, you know? But it has something to do much more than that, and this is one of the reasons why this is going to be a, a practice that's going to grow as opposed to diminish over time. And I was very surprised by that. But I heard a lot of stories like that. Um, about kind of what it does for kids on a moral grounds
2: compared to just the academic grounds. What was your reaction when you heard that the uh, the National uh, Spelling Bee, and the Scripps National Spelling Bee, had been canceled? Uh,
1: I was, you know, uh, very sad for the students because I, I spoke to um, a lot of the contestants and past champions of the of the spelling bee as well as other academic competitions, and you hear from them, and they really enjoyed not just you know they enjoyed. Winning, right, or just you know doing well, but the actuals being in DC for the Scripps National Spelling Bee is its own kind of excitement for them. And and if they can make it on ESPN because uh, the, be the the finals are broadcast on ESPN, if they can make it to the ESPN stage. That's like a highlight of life, right, of any youth life. So uh, any any sports fan like myself would love that too. So uh, I felt sad for the kids, but at the same time, my advice is not is maybe ironically, don't stop studying. And I don't mean that you have to just, you know, prepare for the next uh, a competition that, hasn't, that isn't happening. My point is, if you stop studying just because of the competition is now canceled, then what does that say about why you were studying in the first place? It suggests that the only reason you were studying was to you know, win the trophy, as opposed to you actually enjoyed what you were doing, that yes, you found value in the process. I, I make it akin to the Little League World Series, which is in August, right? Like if that gets canceled... You don't want the kids who are going to be playing that to stop playing baseball in the backyard. You want them to still, you know, toss the ball around, play catch, you know, enjoy uh, getting to the field. And the same thing here, right? We should just stop the idea of enjoying what you um, like, enjoying what you did around the spelling bee or the, the, the geography bee, which is another one that got canceled, or the math, beat, math competitions. Realize what you enjoyed about it and try to do, you know, go back to that,
2: in other words. Why are first-generation Asian-American kids overrepresented in these af- academic competitions such as the Scripps National Spelling Bee?
1: Uh, that's something also I, I speak to, which is that these kids are from parents who were able to migrate to the U.S. because, for the most part, not always, they got extremely high educations in their home countries and did very well in uh, seizing opportunities for mobility. And that's what got them to the US. So they're not only highly educated relative to their peers back in their home countries in Asia, but they're actually oftentimes highly educated relative to their peers here. And that takes an incredible amount of dedication. And so if that's how you were able to make um, up mobility, then it makes sense to you as a parent to say, well, this is what we have to help our kids do so that they also have up mobility or at least you know, don't have downward mobility, don't go down in terms of their, you know, income status compared to us, the parents. And so you're going to be emphasizing education at a young age, which then facilitates, right, this uh, success in academic competitions. And and for a lot of the families, the U.S.-born white families I spoke to, they said the same thing. They said, you know, we moved to, for instance, the East Coast from the Midwest, uh, and we got good jobs here. And that's because you know our parents and we really stress education. And so for my own kids, I want to do the same thing. And so you're seeing this um, commitment uh, that a lot of parents have, but these families are finding ways to invest in it in ways other families uh, often aren't. But again, I want to stress that this is not like an extreme kind of uh, practice. So some of the math centers I'm talking to are like Kumon and mathnasium, as an example, right? Mm -hmm. And these are some of the fastest growing companies in the country, not just educational countries, educational uh, companies, but companies of any kind, right? Which shows that this is a trend that lots of people are finding attractive. And what I wanted to do was understand what's motivating this and what are the implications of this? How do teachers feel about this? How do the kids feel about
2: it? What is hyper-education, as you refer to it, doing to the classroom culture and to individual kids? Can you tell us about the stress levels among kids, even in elementary school? You know, you
1: could even go um, pre-elementary school. I mm. was at a center where I saw a child in a diaper, mm. right? So, um, but to your question, uh, more specifically, uh, teachers I spoke to and principals and, and health experts, um, they, have to some degree, they either are, say they're indifferent towards this or they worry about this. And they typically err on the side of worrying about what it's doing to the culture Inside of the classroom, I had a teacher say, like, I'm seeing kids who are just nonverbal, right? And this is a new trend. I'm seeing kindergartners who can't handle the stress of, you know, of you know, filling the educational commitments of the of the kindergarten, which is kind of going up and up. And then also after school, having, you know, to do a math class and then do a violin lesson or then do some kind of even just do sports, right? In all of these ways, the kids, our kids today are, as many people would just call them, overscheduled. Okay? And parents today are spending more money on their kids than at any time in history. And what's impacting the cl- inside the classroom, teachers are seeing kids who, you know, may be quite good at, at the academic part, right? But just seem fragile, right? And don't seem uh, to be very secure or at ease. And that's what's troubling the teachers. And then you're finding that as more parents do this, uh, other parents feel the need to do it in order to keep up with those who are doing it. So this education arms race is starting. And so parents are saying, sorry, teachers are saying that they see kids who are doing just fine in school worried that they're not doing well enough because they see other kids doing better than them who are invested in these, you know, just after-school programs. again, these after-school programs are as common as soccer and and ballet or something else, right? They're they're all over the place and easy to do. You could be in karate and be in a math center and that's just raising the stakes inside the school. Uh, and so the culture of the school is getting more competitive uh, as parents seek out opp- – well-meaning parents, you know, well, caring parents, thoughtful
2: parents, seeking
1: out opportunities for their kids outside of
2: school. Pavan, how does this trend toward hyper-education expose and increase educational inequality? Right. I think that's an excellent point. I mean, we all know that the quality of education,
1: in some degree, depends on your zip code. Uh, and this is just making that all the more intense, all the more widening the gap. Because you have families, these are typically middle class families or higher income families who can afford to put their kids in these after school, um, academic centers. Just like they can afford to put their kids in, you know, uh, AAU baseball or AAU basketball. And it's creating, um, it's widening the gap between their kids' educational outcomes and abilities. And others, and then you're even seeing like inside the same school, right? Not just, not just across towns, but even in the same school, you're seeing more educational inequality take place as some invest in this and others, others don't. Uh, and teachers, right? When you talk to them, they say this isn't always good for the students, right? To be they don't they don't necessarily learn the way they should learn if they're really invested in these after school programs. Uh, but parents still believe there's a great outcome for this and they, they're not in any way showing any signs of slowing down. Again, especially during this time of concern over how much are our kids getting out of school during with this
2: remote learning, this is going to become even more of a new normal than it already was tending to become. Avin Dengra is joining us on our program, talking with us on the Sunday Magazine. Hopefully you have nice plans on tap for this uh, holiday weekend, a safe one for you and yours, and happy uh, Memorial Day. Hopefully you're in good health as well. Pavan, what's morality got to do with it? That's a great question. And
1: the parents I spoke to, you know, so many of them said, surprisingly to me, that you know, while pe- teachers are going to be worried about the, the stress on the kids and what it does for them, we're worried what would happen to our kids if they don't do this, not just in terms of their academics, but in terms of what kind of kids they would become. I spoke to parents who would say, you know, listen, my neighbor's across the street. like I see their son talk back to their parents, and it's disrespectful. You know, or they're just entitled. Uh, They think that life is going to be handed them on a silver platter because their parents, you know, make middle class, upper middle class incomes. But that's not how life is. I want my kids to know you have to work hard for what you want in life, right, which we all want our kids to realize that value, okay? And for these parents and for a growing number of parents, it means let's put them in activities that aren't just fun, but that add to the kids' understanding that it takes hard work to get ahead. How do you instill that in kids? Right? You just it's not just a lecture that makes the kid realize that, oh, I have to work hard to get ahead. You have to be doing it, right? I have a friend who like my kids who played a lot of little league baseball and I was talking with another friend of mine and he was like, I want my son to be pitching. Not because I want him to pitch like you know, uh in high school down the road, but I want him to feel that pressure of uh, everyone's looking at you and you're the one throwing the ball, right? And you you can't simulate that. You have to be experiencing it to really kind of grow into that. And the same thing here. These parents want their kids to be in activities that are about working hard, that are about kind of what helping down the road as opposed to instant gratification as a way of understanding these are the moral values you need to become a good person. I had parents say things like, you know, I look around my neighbors. The neighbors don't know their kids. Their kids are outside you know, smoking weed or doing these other things. You have to be mindful of your kids, which is why I have them in this after-school math center as a way of reminding my kids, this is who we are. It was, it was a lot of it was like, not just about, again, being academically prepared, but about growing into a certain kind of person. And I have a lot
2: of stories around that, um, which were surprising to me. How would you say the pursuit of hyper-education is gendered? Mothers in particular, I spoke to, were
1: very intentional about having their daughters involved in, for instance, math education outside of school because they had seen the story, seen the statistics, and heard the stories that you know girls when they hit middle school, their confidence in math drops and their uh, outcomes, their abilities seem to drop. And so these mothers were mindful of that and said, I don't want that to happen to my daughter. So I want them in this after-school math center so that they can, when they get to middle school, they have the confidence to handle it, right? And feel like I am good at this subject. So it's not just about what your abilities are, but it's also how you understand your abilities, right? Your own kind of narrative or thoughts about yourself. And by having girls in particular in these centers, it helped, according to mothers, give them a certain kind of sense of I'm good at math. I'm a math kid, even though it wasn't their first love. So when they got to middle school, they wouldn't see a drop, right? And one mother said, I don't want my daughter to be a mathematician. I don't care what she does. I just want her to have options and want her to have confidence. So it was about building up confidence, about building up opportunities uh, for kids, less about, you know, grades per se or about, you know, an SAT score which is coming down the road or something like that. And other um, girls I spoke to, I spoke to a lot of the girls and boys. And the girls I spoke to We're saying, you know, we do this because, you know, we enjoy it. And we also don't want to be seen as just girls who are only interested in, like, how we look or in our aesthetics, right, what we're wearing and our hair. We want to be involved in other things, too. So I'm involved in dance and I'm involved in this. And it kind of makes me a well-rounded person. Uh, And so girls took a lot of pride um, in their activities that were kind of
2: unexpected to some degree. How did the children that you interviewed... And observed, understand their participation and handle the reputation, often stigmatized of being so academically minded.
1: Yeah, that's a really um, a great point to bring up. You know, there's a lot of concern around stress in among youth, and that's very real. And part of that is the stress that students encounter is less because they have you know intense parents, which is what we typically think as being why they're stressed, but it's more I think because the parents. And they, the girls themselves, the kids themselves can value like doing well in these areas and being kind of excelling in academics, but that's not necessarily cool, right, according to their peers at school. And even teachers I spoke to, uh, sometimes youth would say their teachers don't even appreciate uh, and can make them feel somewhat bad about their academic success. And so it's that disconnect, right, between what the kids uh, want to take pride in, what the parents take pride in, and what the school seems to value that created some sense of stigma and concern for students. So I was talking to parents who say, you walk into a school, right? You typically see like the trophy cases right in front of you with all the sports trophies. Mm -hmm. That can be great. But what does that tell you the school values most? You know, it's valuing that. And if your kids aren't that kind of kid, then maybe your kid isn't going to feel as valued here. Right? So parents were very sensitive to those kinds of things. Uh, and so stigma, was one of the outcomes of doing very well in school. But again, a lot of teachers applauded the kids, and some of the spelling bee kids and math kids that I spoke to said that their teachers were their coaches and their, and their greatest champions. But they, but it wasn't uncommon to hear concerns around how the school treated them, either the kids in the school or even the, the school culture relative to their, what they thought would be like the, their sense of pride, like I'm doing academically well. Of all the places that should be applauded, this is the school. But that wasn't always the case, and that creates a sense of stigma. And when you're a 13-year-old, right, you know, that carries a lot of weight, right, um, much more than it does at a at an older age or even a younger age, I mean, you know, that kind of middle, prime,
2: middle school, elementary school, high school age. What does focusing on the children of highly skilled, professional Indian-American parents tell us about both that drive toward hyper-education and also the pushback against it?
1: Yeah, I mean, the parents I speak to, those who were of um, Indian and, and Asian origin felt that, you know, this is something we need to be committed to because this is how we're going to provide mobility for our kids. And then it becomes kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because, well, if we're doing it, Other people are doing it. We have to do it. And they're expected of you, so you have to do it. So you fill up, like you fulfill the expectation of you. Uh, and the spelling bee was one avenue for this, as they saw a lot of their peers uh, kind of excel in spelling and math or other things become kind of expected avenues to find educational um, success or mobility, right, or achievement. And so it kind of creates an expectation around this for the students, for the families, that if we don't do this, then now we're behind, okay? And so you have, you know, uh, immigrants comparing themselves to uh, U.S.-born individuals, immigrants comparing themselves to other immigrants, U.S.-born individuals, you know, saying we need to catch up to the immigrants, The everyone's <laughs> comparing themselves to everyone else as they're trying to keep up with this new normal that's taking place, um, across, um, you know, the New York city metropolitan area and metropolitan areas all over the country, whether it be Boston, DC, San Francisco, Houston, Dallas, it's happening. Uh, like I said, it's, you know, these are some of the fastest
2: growing companies in the country, uh, for a reason, right? This is a growing national trend. I want you to share with us because you had an interesting experience attending uh, spelling bee competitions, both, South Asian centric, and scripts, where you volunteered as a word reader among other roles. What are they like? What was it like being on the podium? What was that like for you? Fearful, <laughs> anxious, <laughs> uh,
1: trepidation,
2: sweat—you know, all
1: of the above. Like, so um, I was. So there are all these spelling bees that take place for kids, obviously, and I went there to see, kind of, you know, be learn how what's going on here as part of this kind of investment in education, uh, and. I volunteered to help out, and so this was a spelling bee that was for kind of older kids. I mean, not older kids, but like, there was a there like fifth, uh, sixth, seventh, eighth grades. Um, this is one for younger kids than that. Uh, and so I was a pronouncer. And so when you're pronouncing words that you don't know the meaning of, you've never even heard before, <laughs> uh, it's not only is that kind of daunting, but then the parents of the students are in the back of the classroom watching me, and they're allowed to, you know, object if they think a word gets mispronounced or something goes wrong, right? That gets their kid out of the competition. So I have parents who, I, who are staring at me if I'm, you know, trying to pronounce words I have never heard before so their kids can, like, spell them correctly and then kind of hopefully move on to the next stage of the competition. So I'm in the back, you know, before the competition starts, I'm in the back room. Uh, I found this app about how to pronounce words properly. So I'm passing in all these words. And, of course, some of the words don't even show up in the app because these are really complicated words. And so, luckily, I got through it without any one objecting. Although I would not have, you know, um, thought they were wrong to object. I'm sure I said some things, uh, mispronounced some some words, but the students got through it fine, and we all ended up, you know, having a good time. But I learned from there: stay in my lane, don't try to become uh, a spelling bee or word pronouncer. Um, you know, keep that for the experts.
2: A question I've been thinking the whole time that we were talking, and I was thinking as I was reading through hyper education, why like good schools, good grades, and good behavior are not enough interesting book. The uh, author Pavan Dingra, who is a uh, professor at american of American Studies at Amherst College, is talking with us on our program. I'm Bob Solter this um trend toward higher education what does this have to do with? What, for years, we've heard described as no child left behind and whole this whole right this whole movement to standardize education
1: right, so no child left behind is uh obviously you know one of the most um, meaningful government programs in education in the past twenty years uh and the premise behind it right is that we want to make sure that children who are not um, getting the same education or quality education as others need to, you know, there need be accountable, more accountable for teachers in schools. Okay, now what this led to in practice was, as you already alluded to, a big increase in assessment of students. Right, so they are a lot more testing going on at the state level, and the families that I spoke to, even though there's been, there's been a lot of pushback against No Child Left Behind for various reasons, including the testing that students have to go to and the teaching of the test. The parents I spoke to are not part of that critique. They think, yeah, students should be assessed. We should know how well our students are doing, how much they're learning. In fact, we don't think there's enough testing to some degree. I spoke to a mother whose child was in second grade and in Massachusetts. The first test that you get is in third grade, the first standardized test. And it's really... You know, something that students aren't even that made that may aware of, but it, just ha- it happens anyway. But she was saying, we have to wait until third grade to find out how well our students are doing. That's too late. So I want my child in an academic competition so I have a sense of how they measure relative to other kids. Again, why? Well, school is competitive. And we may not want it to be, but it is. We have, you know, programs like Race to the Top, right, and we have grants that come out there. And Blue Ribbon Schools that highlight how great they are. I and mean, we're basically saying, yes, school is competitive, and parents realize this, and then therefore they want their kids to be out-competing others. And the whole college entry process is kind of premised on this idea of, you know, demonstrating superiority over other kids to get into the few slots for, you know, um, selective colleges. And so parents are responding to that as well, right? And so No Child Left Behind uh, was is kind of part of this whole story. In fact. Those no all left behind gave billions of dollars to tutoring, right? Again, the premise here was like, well, if kids aren't doing that well in school or they're in schools that are not performing well, they deserve tutoring. But what they ended up doing was giving billions of dollars to tutoring companies that have then kind of grew uh, all over the country. They grew in legitimacy. Uh, they started partnering with education, with schools more. And so now you have parents who, whose kids are doing just fine in school who don't need tutoring. Saying, wait a minute, maybe I should take advantage of these tutoring companies too, right? And that's really seen the uptick, and that's what a lot of what I um, look at. Again, these growing companies that are catering now more and more to middle-class, upper-middle-class families whose kids actually don't need tutoring to stay ahead, to start to keep up with grade level, or to compensate for poorly performing schools. But this is the fastest-growing kind of market for this. That's what's creating this education arms race and facilitating this education gap uh, that we're talking about.
2: Why is it that some people think that if they confront um, the concept of higher ed, hyper-education that basically it's almost like they're confronting the whole notion of childhood?
1: Right. Um, this is, I think, at the heart of it in some ways, right? Like, what kind of childhood do we want for our kids? Do we want childhood to be a time that is separate from adulthood where you can be kind of carefree. It's about this enjoying your time, learning, playtime, uh, discover what you like, take your time to enjoy those things and kind of nurture those passions, whatever those might be. Or they want childhood to be a time that prepares you for the challenges of adulthood, that prepares you for the competitiveness of the next stage, that makes you feel that, you know, I have to be kind of succeeding and be productive at a young age, otherwise I may be left behind, right? That is kind of our fundamental debate right now around what we want out of childhood. And this trend that I'm speaking about is on, the, is on one side of that uh, discussion. These are families, and again, they're growing in number, and they're well-meaning. They're not, you know, intense in, in ways that you may want to caricature, who are saying, you know, childhood is a time to... Be ready for the next stage of life for adulthood. Adulthood is not easy. And if we don't prepare our kids now, if we let them just kind of have more too much free time and too much screen time or too much anything, too much even just uh, play time, then we may not be doing them any favors uh, later on. right? And this is what's in many ways worrying parents uh, and what's kind of um, pushing them to do what they do. And it's part of a kind of a growing you know, uh, discussion, even divide in our country, right? Should we be slowing down? Should we have, you know, should we take childhood back in some ways, uh, or should we kind of think about it as a time to prepare our kids to do them, the, you know, give them the opportunities to be successful? later? of course, it's a false choice, right? Playtime and creative time are really essential, right, for growing as a child and for, for cognitive growth, for social developmental growth. But even if parents know that, they still want their kids in more and more education, and more and more activities in general, because otherwise they feel that other kids will surpass them, and they'll be left behind.
0: Pavan Dhingra, who is a professor of American Studies at Amherst College, the author of Hyper-Education, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough,
2: books published by NYU Press, certainly we wish you the best with this book and uh, your future works. I think that there's a, there's a few things. One is it's so easy to
1: caricature parents who are investing in education for their kids as being, you know, too intense, uh, authoritarian, uncaring. And I, spoke, I spoke to a school principal who said parents who have their kids doing more long division outside of school are just uncaring, they're ungrounded. And I want, you know, that's a school principal who's saying don't do more long division. Um, and I wanted to dispel that. These are well-meaning parents. They're thoughtful parents. They're not Um, single-minded, they have reasons for what they do, and I want to elucidate that. But the reason why I want us to understand that is that if we want to make progress in making childhood less competitive, if we want to make progress in making education a place that thinks about, you know, compassion uh, and creativity as much as it does assessing the ABCs, then we have to be able to look at each other in respectful ways and start that conversation. And that's what I'm hoping this kind of comes out of this, right? We can... I don't mind students being involved in education outside of school. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but it becomes a problem if we're doing it just to make our kids more competitive, just to make them beat out others. Because then it creates a domino effect that involves, again, um, stress, right, anxiety, lack of confidence, all of the themes that um, I heard teachers and, and others tell me about. But to get at, past that, right, we have to realize why is it? What's motivating this? And have parents and also understand what's why teachers and principals and guidance counselors are concerned about this. Um, I spoke to college admissions officers, and I, hear, I share their side of this and why they think this kind of investment in hyper education may backfire. Right, um, but we're not going to get past it if we just think about them and these people who are doing it or those who are critiquing it as single-minded in their approaches. Right.
2: Um, and so that's what I really want people to get out of this. Pavan, what book is in the works beyond this one?
1: Well, uh, I've been interested in this, uh, like like this book currently, education is about the pursuit of education outside of school, right? And, and so what does that look like? And so the similar theme is motivating me to think about where else we see education and learning outside of schools. Um, obviously schools are essential, but they're not. They have a lot of partners, and we need to recognize – because the partners in in, two schools are growing in importance and in their implications. So uh, while hypereducation looks at these learning centers and these competitions, um, I'm also interested in how, for instance, libraries, on the other side of the coin, can be partners in education. What are they doing to facilitate education? Um, And other kind of cultural centers, for instance, could be seen as partners in education. So I'm interested in what their role is. Um, in our collective kind of learning. Thank you for joining us on our program. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. I'm Bob Solter, joined by Lyra Logan. Lyra is the author of an interesting new book. Now this has a great title, Learn to Program with App Inventor. Uh, she is an MIT master trainer in educational mobile computing. And she is... Joining us on our program to talk with us about a number of interesting ideas. You know, this whole idea of computer science education is something that has come up in uh, the middle of December, the 9th through the 15th, actually, Computer Science Education Week, which is a perfect time to be talking about the whole idea of apps and uh, the like. Uh, First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning.
3: Good morning, Bob. Thank you for having me.
0: A lot of things I want to ask you, but one of the first is this whole idea of um, computer science. Why is it so important for kids to have a basic understanding of that?
3: Because we are living now in, as everybody knows, a technology-driven society, really? where we're all, uh- yes, <laughs> <laughs> where we're all walking around with these small, super-powered computers, these uh, smartphones. And of course, there's social media and online shopping and the robots and, and IBM Watson from New York and, and just self-driving cars and just everything now, the Internet of Things. And and we all need to know, we need to have a basic understanding of the power and impact of this field that's dominating our lives, this computer science field. And um, so that's, that's the very first reason we need to know how these things work, and, and we need to be able to sort of create with the technology rather than just use it, Um, and because even if a child, and because we're not, you know, the proponents of computer science education for all are are not saying that everyone is going to become a computer scientist, but we're saying that even if a child doesn't end up working in a technical field, it's likely that his or her work will involve some aspect of, of computers, so that's really another reason and then I think finally, uh, since since technology is so dominant, uh, computing jobs have become the number one source of new wages in the United States. And so that provides a great opportunity. And to know that our needs for skilled computing workers are not being met means that we really do need to expose more kids to computer science and hopefully strike a chord with them so that they will want to go on and um, and pursue it and so then we do need to be teaching it as early as we can to to our kids
0: okay this brings up a natural point because i think based on what you just said it's appropriate to ask how early then do we start trying to teach kids and how sophisticated does this get do we start going into things like coding
3: so, yes, we start first of all, we start in elementary, and we do start uh, with you start with there there's more to computer science than just coding that coding is the as is the part of computer science where uh, programmers or people talk to the computers and tell them what they want them to do so we do start um, in our programs in in Florida and many others start by teaching coding. But we don't teach it in the intimidating way of that most people may think of coding where you are sitting in a room at a computer typing lines and lines of unintelligible characters and code on the screen. We teach it using these visual programming environments like App Inventor and there are many others where kids are not typing code but they're dragging and dropping blocks of code. To the screen, almost like piecing a puzzle together on screen to program games and animations and apps. And so, in the book "Learn to Program it with App Inventor," I am using a App Inventor is a visual programming environment that makes it much easier, and and is and that's why it's a good platform to start using to start to learn to code.
0: What happens if for some reason they just don't get it?
3: They usually get it and they, because it's, like I say, it's like, it's fun and it's very easy, it's like putting, it's like snapping, uh, really like snapping the the pieces of a puzzle together. So it it is, it's kind of impossible not to get when you're using the visual programming environment, which is why we have started teaching kids to code with that. Um, with those types of languages as opposed to the typing that you could easily not get because it's it's not easy to look at that code and understand. It. And it's also not as fulfilling to sit for, let's say an hour and type code and then all you see on the screen is high world. Whereas with these visual programming environments, in an hour you've got a fully functional game, you've got a fully functional app. And so it not only is it easy, but it's also engaging and encouraging.
0: In an hour, a fully and functional game or app?
3: Yes, in fact, the other day for Computer Science Education Week, I went to, I uh, was down in Miami teaching middle school students how to create the very first app in, in the book, Learn to Program with App Inventor, which is a type free texting app. And they created the fully functional app in the one hour that I had with them. So that's the the beauty of these types of, of programming environments because it makes it quicker. The blocks combine lots of commands in one. Um, what you would type several lines of code, the blocks contain in one block that you would that you would put in. So you're still doing the thinking. You're still doing the cre- the creativity of the the creative part of the of building the app and you're, you know, you're figuring out the algorithm, which is simply a step-by-step plan, but you're not having to type all the, the tedious typing of all that code.
0: Mm. This whole idea of um, computer science and exposure to it, I mean, do a fair number of high schools even teach this?
3: Well, there was a recent report came out the um, State of Computer Science 2019 that shows that 45% of U.S. high schools are teaching computer science now, and that's that's an increase from prior years. And I think in, so in New York City, I'm I'm sorry, New York State, 44% of your high schools teach it. And so it varies um, from state to state, but overall in America, it's 45% of the schools are teaching it while 90% of parents want it taught. so
0: There's a little bit of a disparity there. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yes. Caused mostly by the fact that we're still uh, in the process of developing teachers uh, to teach it. We, st- we just don't, around the country, have enough teachers who are qualified to teach it. So most of the districts are doing their best to, uh, the school districts are doing their best to uh, offer professional development and and uh, colleges that are preparing teachers are doing their best to start uh, adding computer science education components for their teacher for their uh, teachers that are graduating, but it's just taking time because there's so many schools and so many people needed to teach to teach the um, the subject.
0: Well, also, is part of the issue something that I was also going to bring up, and and, and maybe I phrased my question earlier incorrectly when I was asking about uh, the students and not getting it. Um, What about those of us who are, let's say, a little bit more seasoned age-wise? In other (laughs) words, older. uh, (laughs) Do older people at times tend to be more intimidated by this idea of coding? I mean, again, it's learning something new
3: and many
0: people, a barrier comes up immediately when, you know, some sort of change happens like that.
3: Right. I think, um, sort of, folks who, are, who may be out of school, and then, of course, even older, like us, the baby boomers may not um, necessarily be interested in learning anything new, and then some of them, and some of us are. Um, but, and also, we may not be as adept with, with the, the technology. That all of these kids are growing up surrounded by. So we may not see. We do notice that these kids, since they're used to having phones and tablets and computers in their hands all the time, even though they're just they're having them in their hands to use them, they seem to be. That may be one of the reasons why they easily adapt to now beginning to create with them instead of just using them. Whereas you know, older older people may not be walking around with a phone attached. Um, every you know, and playing games on the phone all day, or as much as their parents will let them. So, I think that that is a reason a a reason why older people may be a little bit more intimidated by picking up and starting to create with technology.
0: We're talking on our program with Lira Logan. She is um, author of a new book entitled "Learn to Program with App Inventor." Uh, she is um, talking with this about this whole topic of uh, computer science uh, education. When we talk about computer programming, and we'll get into talking a little bit about the book in just a couple of moments, but what would you say are perhaps some of the biggest misconceptions about that that we have?
3: I think the first is that because the code that you see is is virtually unintelligible, that that somehow it's a... It's a magical ability, or an ability that's that's too complex for for regular people like me to, you know, like me and you. We're just regular folks. We can't do that. It's 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 something that you've got to be a a scientist to to be able to grasp. So that is too complex, or it's it's um it's too hard for me. That's one of the concepts that uh, the misconceptions that people have, and that's why I'm glad that more and more of these visual programming environments that are sort of a softer way to introduce folks to creating with technology. Um, I'm glad they're available now. So that's one misconception that it's just too hard. Um, Everybody can't do it. The next one is that it's boring. And, you know, of course, that's going to be a, a personal determination whether or not you find something boring. But I always say that once you learn how to code, then you can create anything. And so it's kind of when you think of it that way, it it's kind of hard for that to be boring because you've just sort of opened the world up to yourself to create anything that you want to with, with you know, just get to your computer and create anything. And then the, I think the last one is that it's, it's lonely and solitary and that you're always working alone when you're a coder, when in fact, as a computer programmer or software developer, you're often working in teams and you're collaborating with your other team members who are working on the project or with someone who's hired you for the project or with people who are testing uh, the app or, or project that you've created. And so it's not as lonely a pursuit as maybe some people think.
0: Your book, how do you see this, uh, or do you see this, perhaps inspiring students to even want to get, but to sort of get prepared for... Education and education in computer science, and potentially careers in this field.
3: I think the first thing the book does, and it's certainly my first goal, was to demystify coding, to dispel some of those misconceptions that it's hard, and that and that some people can't do it, and some people can. So, by taking students in the very first chapter through creating. A fully functional app with cool mobile tech, uh mobile technology features like um, speech recognition and texting. It, it, it begins to instill confidence in readers that they themselves and everyone else can create their own working apps. And then it demonstrates how apps are created and 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 the type of programming that that a coder would use to create an app. So they learn that and then it 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 in a very fun and engaging way it exposes students to the computer programming concepts that they will encounter in any language that they end up coding in if they go on in computer science because these languages change way back when it was fortran was the language and then there was c++ and now there's python and i code in a language called php and so there are many languages but they all have as a foundation the computer programming concepts that I'm teaching in each chapter of the book with some really cool, cool apps that use the greatest and the most fun mobile technology. So we've got games and a, a bus tracking app that uses GPS and the location sensor and a quiz app and, and even an app at the end where you take a selfie and then you can try on virtual sunglasses. So lots of fun and engaging engaging uh, projects that teach these great skills. And then after they create the, the apps, then I challenge them to go ahead and modify them, learning you know using what they've learned. So I believe they really leave the book knowing uh, some computational thinking like how to break problems down into small parts and solve them, and then also learning the, the core computer programming concepts.
0: I can't believe you actually mentioned a term that I was familiar with from my college days. Fortran.
3: Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, that was the, the the very, one of the very first ones I had ever heard about the first language. And, um, and, and it really is true that from that language to all of the rest of them, Java and all of the rest, they have the same foundational computer programming concepts that, uh, that, that make them work.
0: So if somebody has an idea for an app, because often you hear somebody say, "Well, you know,
3: you should do an
0: app with that." Um, <laughs> what's the first step in bringing it to life?
3: So, if I had an, a, an idea for an app, the first thing I would do is go to do some market research, and that may be a little—that uh, may sound a little intimidating, but I simply mean just go to the Google apps, the Google Play Store, or the Apple App Store, and just see is it already out there. And is it out there the way the is the app in that store the way you think it should work and and so if it is then maybe I would I may not I might not pursue it but if it's not up there if no one else has created the app then I would sort of run with it and what makes the um, the app inventor program so useful in in a sense of sort of launching an app or launching a, a project is because. You can create these apps so quickly with the, the, these fully featured um, mobile tech apps um, very quickly. So I would throw together a prototype, and uh, then I would distribute it to my family and friends and see if it if it does what I think it does, and if they if they um, if they use it the way that I think they would, and if they if, if it seems like they would buy it, and if so, I would go ahead and. Make whatever modifications uh, I, I learn from from that, their feedback, and then go ahead and get it get it up on the app stores
0: and sell it. Hmm. Lyra Logan talking with us on our program, and uh, she is in. Web, a certified web development professional. She directs pre-college computer science programs and summer coding camps for elementary, middle and high school students. She's also the author of a book with the title Learn to Program with App Inventor. And uh, there's a website at programwithappinventor that's all this one word, O-R-G. And she's been kind with her time in uh, talking with us about this idea of computer science, education, and a little bit about the book as well. Certainly the best with the book. And thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. Hopefully your words perhaps can provide some inspiration for some of the folks listening to us too. Thank you so much, Bob. Thanks so much for joining us on our program. I'm Bob Solter. Hopefully we'll see you at 6 o'clock next Sunday morning. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on What's in Your Podcast queue.